I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. What's going on, everybody? All right, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to continue our discussion on evidence-based medicine, how to wrap your mind around research, data, and evidence, and how to apply it to your current practice. So, Jason, let's go ahead and discuss some things that we have going on in our region in Georgia in reference to updates and how we can look at the data that we're gathering from some of the new proposals here. So, where should we start? So let's talk about some practice changes in EMS uh, that have provided some benefits. So here in where we are in Northeast Georgia, uh, we are in uh, Department of Community Health Region 2. So it's this region in the very far right hand, upper right hand corner of Georgia, Northeast uh, corner. And working out of our STEMI system, uh, which is the hub and spoke model for Northeast Georgia Medical Center, we took it upon ourselves several years ago to try to bring together uh, pre-hospital care with definitive care for STEMIs. One of those uh, treatments is giving very potent uh, anticoagulation. And so Dr. Jeff Marshall, uh, who is uh, a mentor of mine. Super great guy. Came came to me and we had these discussions about EMS giving Plavix or Clopidogrel, a very potent uh, P2Y12 inhibitor along with aspirin. And I am embarrassed to admit that when he first brought that to me, I said, I just don't think that's going to happen. An oral medication, an anticoagulant, I don't think EMS is ready for that. And I'm embarrassed to admit that because we went to one county and had these discussions and they said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And then we started this meeting called the STEMI Summit where we brought in EMS providers along with uh, ER staff and physicians and cardiology. And we started to have these discussions. One county started doing it and then another county came on board and then another county came on board up to the, up to the point now that we have 18 counties all working under a single protocol for STEMI care. And a big part of that is giving these potent antiplatelet medications. Now, it's fairly controversial across the country, and there are very few places that are doing it, certainly very few places that are doing it on the scale that they're doing it here. So we have some EMS that come into Northeast Georgia Medical Center where they want these medications given. There's other hospitals that would prefer these medications not be given. So what did they do about that? Well, the local EMS medical director said, they are functioning under my license. These are the protocols that I'm giving them. I want these medications given for our patients, regardless of what the receiving hospital wants. Now, that's a pretty big paradigm shift because we're always so focused on what is the hospital we're going to want? Well, they took it to say, these are our patients. We're going to do what the evidence says is best for our patients. And so there was a lot of pushback from that. Yeah, but you know, the beautiful thing about that, and and I was witness to it because that was around the time that I came in. That's this, that is around the time that I started firing EMS, which was around 2010. So I was able to witness a culture shift in this region that actually started embracing evidence-based medicine. So it's really cool that that you and Dr. Marshall and the team were able to actually cause that ripple effect 
because now people start paying attention to the research. Absolutely. And where EMS has made a difference is some of these other hospitals that were so against it. EMS had the tenacity to just keep doing it, doing it, doing it, and medical director backing them, backed by evidence-based medicine. And now several other hospitals in our region say, okay, EMS, if you're going to do that, then we'll go ahead and accept it. Mm. And so they've actually been able to enact practice changes across the board because they are doing evidence-based medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, truthfully, that is the way it should be. We need to be looking at every aspect about our job, about what we do, about why we show up every day, clock in, whatever you do at your service, and and every aspect about our job, we need to evaluate it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. But let's talk about some some trial, other trials that we've done in EMS that become very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so the problem with removing bias is we have to be consistent. If you can't be consistent, then it can't be statistically significant. So one of the big trials that initially did not show very, very good evidence or very good results was the primed trial. So the prime trial was resuscitation outcome consortium. And they looked at using threshold impedance devices. So one of these trials that they did was called the PRIMED trial. Resuscitation Outcome Consortium took several EMS um, services across the country, and they used ITDs or impedance threshold device. Mm. It's a device that's put over top the ET tube, and uh, as you bag air in, on exhalation, it maintains the pressure, and the hypothesis was that it would bring blood flow back to the heart. Mm. Everything pointed to this device working. In the lab, you know, we would they would do things in a pig lab. They would arrest a pig's heart, and they would resuscitate them, and they would do those kind of trials. Well, the bias there is when they use the pigs in the lab, it's a very controlled environment. It's a healthy heart. It's not a human heart. It doesn't have all the comorbidities and everything. So they had to do a real world trial. So they did a randomized trial. And so what would happen is uh, when EMS worked in arrest, they would be randomized to either using that ITD or what's called a sham device. So it looked exactly the same, uh, but you couldn't tell, really tell the difference. It showed that the ITD did not work. It, it showed absolutely, no, well, not absolutely, it showed no benefit to doing it. But as you looked further into it, it was several thousand paramedics that they were trying to do this with. They didn't follow the protocol appropriately. And so the results really can't be determined as uh, whether or not an ITD should be used or shouldn't be used. Absolutely. And that, like you said, that is so hard to remain consistent with that because at that point we are looking at personnel differences. You're, you're looking at the ability to have a, and I'm not saying just because somebody is a seasoned medic does not mean that they're closed minded. Some of the sharpest, brightest, and the most, the, the people that I look up to are 25 year medics, mm. but they embrace change. They embrace evidence-based practice. And so they're more than willing to say, all right, so this is the protocol and that, and that we'll use that situation as an example, they would be more than willing to do it appropriately and they would hold everybody to that standard, but that's not everyone. That's, Absolutely. That's not every medic. And you and I both know that you can't really paint with a broad brush whenever we discuss, Hey, 
I expect for all the medics in this region to be compliant with the the parameters of the prospectus here. Absolutely. You know, this is what we're trying. This is what we want to study. This we think that we're going to have a good outcome with this. You can't expect for everybody to be compliant with that. Yeah. And conversely, you can't. Ex- you don't want to expect everybody to give it pushback either. So. Yeah. But you and I both know that there. You have medics who you want to put this in the hands of, and you trust. Hey, yeah, they're going to give this their all. They're going to do a good job. And you also have medics that it's like. I really don't want you touching my dog. Uh, So one example that I can think of is the recent shift in fluid administration. I mean, talk about that for a second, because that goes against everything we've learned about over the past 20 years. You know, that's a big shift because, um, you know, years ago we came out with this thing that absolutely just kills me and kills a lot of people, actually, is this fluid bowl. It's a 20 millimeter, 20 uh, milliliters per um, kilogram. And that's what I was taught. And those were great for pediatrics. But, and that's where it was initially based on pediatrics resuscitation. And, th- and that makes complete sense. But somehow that got into uh, adult um, resuscitation as well, uh, fluid resuscitation. And it's just absolutely asinine. And so we say that, we test on it, but no one actually does it. I mean, if you have a hundred kilogram patient, are you mm-hmm. really telling me you're dumping two liters of fluid into them right. before we ever do anything else? I mean, that's uh, you know, that's just ridiculous. But we think hypotension, we have to have fluids. Yeah, and that is not the case. No. And man, this opens a whole other can of worms because the, this is why it's important to be able to process the data and the evidence-based medicine and combine it with critical thinking. You have to be able to critically think. Absolutely. So this is where we're looking at it like, hey, what's causing the hypotension? Vessel, volume, Absolutely. or pump? No, but I went to EMT school in 1994. Bro, 2010. Yeah, but <laughs> even in 94, it was... You start as many IVs as you can on them, and you push enough fluids till they start bleeding pink. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was the standard. That's how it was in 2010 when I went. Absolutely. And so now we look at the data, and the data is clear. So the the SOAP trial, SOAP 2, clearly show in almost all forms of shock, other than septic shock, that pressors are better than fluids. And in another episode, we'll talk about cardiogenic shock and how Mm -hmm. fluids are actually uh, detrimental. Absolutely. But what do we do in EMS to be able to not even just do studies, but how do we know what we're doing is actually working? So, So like you're saying, I think it would be smart to discuss how is an industry, how is a profession, how do we stay progressive? How do we stay ahead of the eight ball like that? Or at least keep up with the eight ball? Yeah. And how do we know what we're doing matters or is absolutely making a difference? You know, right. there's a there's a thing in research um, called the Hawthorne effect. The Hawthorne effect is when you are being watched, it will change your behavior. I believe that. Um, I mean, look at look at all this stuff with with cameras everywhere. You know, if <gasps> if you see a sign that says red light camera and you see a red uh, you see a camera up there, are you going to run that red light? <laughs> yeah, likely not. I hold up a mask of Brandon Carey in front of you. Well, yeah, I was about to say I uh, I've gotten a few of those tickets. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so other, everyone other than Brandon, would you actually Thanks, run Fulton that? Fulton County. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so that's a bias. It's somewhat of a bias, but it's not a bad bias. Mm-hmm. So this is what the QI process is, but too much in 
I'll just say in, in the fire service and the EMS industry and just pre-hospital in general, typically when someone, when you're approached by someone about an issue, it's, you're getting in trouble. Yeah. What did I do wrong? Went against a protocol. How could you do that? Now you're going to be, you know, you're going to be disciplined for some reason. You know, that's how we operate. Um, but we have to have real time feedback. We have to understand what we did. Did it make a difference or was it detrimental? So in, we have a problem in pre-hospital of we don't measure things. Oh my we gosh. We do things, but then we don't find out, did it work? Yeah. Was it appropriate? And when you can do that, you can adjust. So how do we do that? Yeah. So we have to be part of a system and we have to work within a system. We have to stop thinking that a patient enters an EMS system and then they enter a hospital system. Right. No, they enter a system. It's a community-based approach. From the time they call 911 mm. until the time that they are given a clean bill of health, yeah. maybe a year later, maybe five years later. They are within a system, and we have to stop fragmenting that out. And that should not vary from department or service to exactly. service to service. Exactly. So let's just take, since we've been talking about cardiac arrest, let's just take cardiac arrest. And I would ask people listening, what is your survival rate of cardiac arrest? Now, you may be shouting out some numbers, but if I were to really dig in and ask you about that, you likely do not know. You likely do not know because we have these ridiculous things in hospitals like... Um, I can't tell you about your patient because that's a HIPAA violation. Right, right. I'm sorry, you can't tell me about my patient because it's a HIPAA violation. Right. Um, anyone that says that, I would say the <laughs> next time you bring a patient to the hospital and they do, in our hospital, we do the 30 seconds of silence so that uh, the EMS crew can give a report. I think you should just stand there silently. And when they say, well, tell us about this patient, you say, I would like to, but that's a HIPAA violation. That's <laughs> exactly it's the same so thing. It's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, it is asinine yeah. to say, I mean, it is completely legal and appropriate yeah. to share that information. In fact, I think that information needs to be shared immediately. Absolutely. And that's what will create practice changes. That and identifying a global marker of success. Everybody needs to understand the goal they're shooting for. Absolutely. Like, hey, getting a pulse back? No, you didn't save them. That's just because you got a pulse back does not mean you saved a life. Yeah, you give enough epi, you can get a pulse back from a rock. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, people need to understand. And when I say people, I mean us, our profession. We need to start looking at, all right, where's the bar? Where's the bar mm -hmm. to be set? And what do I need to be shooting for? So somebody being discharged from the hospital with a quality of life. Absolutely. And that's a that's an important distinction. You know, getting back to the quality of life that they had. You know, ending Absolutely. up in a vent farm, you know, is is terrible. Yeah. Um, that's not that does not constitute survival um on on any spectrum. You know, we um here here we are uh around this area we're we're kind of Falcons fans. They uh eh. well anybody worth anything is a oh. Falcons fan. Oh, and okay. and so back a couple years ago they were uh this is even more embarrassing. Um <laughs> they were in a Super Bowl <laughs> and they were uh they were ahead Maniacal and there was laugh. no way that they were gonna lose that Super Bowl. In fact Matt Ryan threw for record yards. I mean, he had the game of his life. <laughs> but did he? Oh, he did personally, mm -hmm. but they lost. So who cares? 
who cares if you get a pulse back, but you lose the game? <laughs> I got to give a shout out to my uncle Kevin right now. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so until they ban Patriots fans and Tom Brady, which by the way, Brady is the medical term for slow. Yeah, but it's not the term for how fast they get Super Bowl rings now, yeah. is it? Hmm. What about Red Sox fans? You can keep those, right? No, none of them. No, of course not. No, <laughs> no. So, so definitely setting the marker. But what about um, questioning the recommendations? Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I, I think that's where medical direction. You know, we have physician medical direction, and I think that medical directors have to be just as engaged with this than staff. But what if you work for a department where you've never met your medical director? Man, what do I've you do worked for those? Me too. What do you do? How do you fix that? Man, that's a great. That's a great question. You have to be engaged, and I think as medical directors, a lot of times they're not engaged. Because the staff aren't, and they're really apprehensive, and I would be apprehensive. I wouldn't want to give license to someone that I've never met. I've never, I wouldn't say, "Hey, you can work under my license. Feel free to give all this um, when I've never met you." But we do that right. in EMS. Yeah, absolutely. On, on <laughs> I'm verifying that you know what you're doing. Yeah, that you should go and be in charge of somebody's life or death. Right. Yeah. And I've never met you. And the bigger the bigger your service, the more difficult that is. So there's a couple things that we have to do that are mandatory. One is we have to report our data. Mm, good or bad. Good or bad. We have to report it. Um, I know people hate filling out patient care reports. And the they are so important for the care of that patient. But it's probably even more important for the care of future patients. Right. We'll talk later in another episode of what we're doing in this state with emergency cardiac care centers for STEMI and, and cardiac arrest. We're doing things that very few or no other states uh, really are doing. But if we want to make a difference, we have to measure it. Yeah. We have to measure it. We have to make recommendations. We have to implement it. And then we have to remeasure it. And I agree, Brandon. I think we should be skeptical. I think we should start from a place of skepticism. If we believe in the guidelines, we should say our next thing that we look at, is it equal to or not inferior to the current guidelines? Absolutely. You know, the other, the other thing is uh, another mentor of mine said one time that if you have to come up to the guidelines you're already far behind. Yeah, you're in the wrong place. You should really be exceeding the guidelines um, more than just adhering to them. So what about uh, what about being in a system like you were talking about earlier, that, that whole community-based approach between from service to service within the hospital? Yeah, we have to share that information. Yeah. And we have to be transparent with that information. We have to stop getting our feelings hurt when someone calls up and says, uh, hey, you know, this was... Uh, this was an anterior STEMI and you gave a thousand milliliters of fluid to this patient yeah. and um, man, they, we just couldn't do anything for them. So the next key is I can't defend that. Exactly. So why did you give a thousand milliliters of fluid? Uh, it's because that's what I was taught in EMT school. Yeah. And, and you know what? That's, that's okay because that was the information you're given. But now that you're given different information, how does that change yeah. what you do? And these are not all just practice. You know, as we look at some of this stuff, this is not all just paradigm shifts, protocol changes. It might be, I just have to focus my attention on maybe things that are a little bit more important. Right. And, and that's the issue is that the data is here. 
It's it's now that type of data and research absolutely about fluids and cardiogenic shock. That's just one example. Absolutely, it's already here. So we have to be aggressive. We each of us have a personal responsibility and a professional responsibility to investigate it if it's not being given to us. Absolutely, absolutely, and we've got to stop as EMS just going out and saying, "I think we should get blood in the field." I think we should do rapid sequence intubation in the field. Mm -hmm. I think we should do this. Well, here's the great thing about data. I don't care what you think. Right. I don't care how you feel. In fact, one of my pet peeves is when someone says, well, I feel like I don't care how you feel. Right. Show me the data. Right. Show me where EMS doing rapid sequence intubation is beneficial. Right. Um, Show me where EMS giving um, blood in the field is beneficial right. or ketamine or TXA or any of that stuff. Right. And I think it's out there. It is. But we just have to show it to you. Um, otherwise, from the medical community, we're going to get shut down. Absolutely. And it's just going to be, well, I'm glad you feel that way. I feel differently. We'll just agree to disagree and we'll never do it. When in fact, we should be giving data that is so overwhelming, it almost, le- almost becomes negligent not to do it. Absolutely. And we also need to be looking at what we need to stop doing as well. Good point. So, and and with that to say, to your point of blood administration, absolutely, there is data out there. And then also, in the same situation as the cardiogenic shock, the, the fluid restriction. If you have a patient who is bleeding out, do you need to turn them into Kool-Aid, like we were saying <laughs> yeah. earlier? Do, do you need to drop their hemoglobin to the point where it doesn't exist? So, and, and that is where we need to get to. We need to right. get to where that is the, with the new normal. And we just rock on from there. And in our defense, we haven't gotten feedback from how did our treatment benefit or cause detriment to the patient? You know, to hear a surgeon go in there, well, because of your treatment, this is all the extra work I had to do, or I just couldn't do this because of this. I promise if you have that uh, feedback to people, they're going to change the way they do it. Yep. So I guess the end all takeaway, take personal responsibility, take the personal pride, in your profession, and in what you do every day to investigate. Absolutely. Do your own research because nobody else is going to do it for you. Yeah, and that's that's really why we're here. As yep. class citizens, we're going to go through all of this stuff. And it, when we can understand it on a deeper level, then we can figure out how are we going to do what's not just what's best for patients, but what's best for our career. You know what? No one wants to stay stagnant. No one wants to keep doing the same thing. You know, we want to do the next thing, the next exciting thing. And really now more than ever, EMS is being pushed to the forefront of patient care and whether, and it's not all just emergency care. Um, Community paramedicine is a big thing coming about. But you can't be a community paramedic based on initial pre-hospital education. Right. You cannot do that. It just doesn't exist. You have to be um, above that level to be able to provide that level of care. Yep. So with that to say, uh, like Jason was saying earlier, you guys can find a lot of the stuff we were talking about today on the website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. We will have visual aids. We will have the charts. We will have any type of supporting data that we claim on here. You will be able to find it there. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.